Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to the Storyteller's Corner. I'm your host, Joshua Culkin's Trilogy, and this is another installment in the short-run sub-series about the author. She's the hostess with the mostest, and a little more, to paraphrase her. This lady comes to us via Skype today, hailing from Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. She's a horror film fanatic and addict, performing reviews and critiques on her YouTube channel, and is working on several screenplay-style projects at the moment. Ladies and gentlemen, give a warm salutations to the Maven of the Macabre, Sasha, Princess of Darkness. Thank you for joining me today, Sasha. Oh, my pleasure, as always. It's been far too long. Uh, yes, it's been a couple of years since I uh, made a brief uh, appearance on your podcast, um, which, strangely enough, somehow earned me an IMDb credit. I don't know how that works. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Even my kids got one, and he's like, how the fuck did that happen? And I'm like, I got no clue. I'm, I'm like, but hey, good news of it is it's underneath my last name. It's your mom's last name, so you ain't catching no hell over it. I'm like, you got an automatic alias. Way to go. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I, I was curious. I was wondering if that was something that the, the website that you were that you use for your podcast has like a link or a tie-in to IMDb or how that works, but... Well, apparently I, I found I've got a very small but loyal following, so it might have been their doing. Um, and it's weird because with the way YouTube is lately anymore, you can't really tell how many views or how many people were actually really watching because the way they count views now, you've got to be subscribed and logged in to that channel for that view to count. So even though your view count may show like, let's say, roughly 30 or 40 you know, views total, I've done live streams like through the PSN where I'm getting all the feed from PSN and YouTube raw directly as to how many eyeballs are on me, and it's in the thousands. But those views aren't counting when everything's done. And I've even done screen grabs showing, okay, why does it show here? I've got a thousand plus viewers watching me, and then once this is gone up and is fully on YouTube, 24 hours later, it's only showing like 30 or 40 views. I'm like, it's kind of fucked up. <laughs> I think it may go hand in hand with YouTube's uh, and Google's efforts to try and minimize the amount of uh, advertising revenue sharing they have to do with uh, content creators. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they, they have a tendency to mess a lot of things up, and they've been missing the mark a lot. Well, it's part of the reason, part and parcel of why I, I don't do a lot of YouTube uploads anymore. I'm starting to rely a wee bit more uh, steadily on the podcast, just as it is. Well, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that, you know, since I have been involved in, like, some minor roles and, like, some, you know, local films and things of that nature, it does kind of help that... I guess somebody at IMDb is keeping track of all of this. I'm like, well, congratulations to you if you're setting through like some of my two hour plus long podcasts. <laughs> Kudos to you. But um, what cracks me up is is that you know a lot of the information I keep at the end credits of the video, and somebody's got to set through and watch those end credits over and over and over again to catch all that info. And whoever's doing it, they're doing a hell of a job, and it's not something I'm doing. I can tell you that much. <laughs> Um, now, if I may, if I may ask, why horror as a genre? Um, well, growing up, um, it was one of my more fondest memories, um, because being in a military family, we moved around a lot, and it was interesting, because there was always either a cinema on post that you could walk to relatively easy, uh, if you lived off base, there was always a mom and pop theater nearby, or a drive-in. Um, we were very early adopters to cable. Um, I can tell you now, I remember days figuring out how to hack the old boxes. Now, granted, the old boxes aren't like the modern boxes where they've got like a little computer inside, but there's certain little dials and switches you can hit to access all the channels as long as you're plugged in, which decodes everything. And we would figure that stuff out within the first couple of days of having the box and just have everything unlocked, watching pay-per-view movies for nothing and not getting billed for it. Because back in the day, you didn't get billed for pay-per-view unless the cable guy came out and unlocked the channel for you. Right. Which was, 
which was kind of cool. And, and we had access to that. We learned how to gut that stuff pretty early on, you know, being six and seven years old, knowing how to do that was interesting. You got um, to imagine mom, how many people don't know how to do any of that shit or know what you're talking about these days. Yeah. Well, it's it kind of like the same way of finding like, a, a you know, a, what do you call it? A jailbroken like cable box nowadays. Because right. you can get those. Granted, there's always patches and updates and you're getting a new jailbroke device every time to do it. But comma, you know, the old school way was a little bit similar. It was complex, but you had to know how to do it. Uh, but growing up, um, you know, uh, we only had family. Like, my brother and I are very close. Uh, my mom and I are very close. Uh, and basically, whenever Dad would go out into the field, because, you know, you'd be bivouacked, or Dad would be busy, you know, pounding the pints away at the bar or something, Mom would be bored. She'd hit some money away either in some picture frames or behind some power outlets to grab us a uh, cheap pizza so Dad didn't snag it for his drinking habit. And you know. And uh, we would have a movie night, and we either watch Elvira or whatever shitty horror movie that Dad detested growing up, <laughs> and we would watch that all night long. Um, and my mom always had this tendency because I don't know if you remember back in the day of HBO. I know I've got a couple years on you, but back in the days of HBO, they used to love to show the making of things like the making of Terminator, the making of any of those movies to show you how it was made so you can say, hey, you know, this isn't really happening. So as a small child that's watching a movie like that, you can go, oh, these are just people playing pretend, and here's how this looks like the way that it does. And it made movies very interesting. You got to see the artistry of it, and you got to see the flick, and it was an interesting experience. And, of course, I grew up in the era of horror hosts. Um, my biggest role models, of course, were Elvira. I always loved Elvira to death. You know, most kids had, you know, Sesame Street with Grover. Me, I was more about watching Elvira. Um, I was also into Joe Bob Briggs at the time because he was just starting to not just write his column, but he was also coming on TV for TNT and USA back in the day. In right. The early days of Monster Vision. I remember, uh, I, was, I remember the first days he was doing that shit. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it was brilliant. So I had that, and then of course I loved watching like the old, um, what was his name, McClure. Um, damn, it's on the tip of my tongue. Doug McClure. I used to love his rubber monster movie epics, and you know, I, I, I you know, kind of had a little itty bitty girl crush showing Caroline Monroe back in the day. Because I'm like, wow, you know, she's really pretty. She kicks ass. I, I, I love this, you know. And that's something that just kind of stuck with me all throughout my life and you know I always had an interest in the dark and the weird things and just being able to climb out on your roof some nights with a pair of binos and a, and a bad radio and pick up what's playing at the drive-in that was also epic granted there were some nights where you know your mom or your dad was trying to snatch you off the roof because they, they weren't showing you know the horror movies that night they, they were showing something else right <laughs> they were showing <laughs> get off that roof why you shouldn't be watching that Plus, we don't have the insurance in case you fall and break your neck. The blood and gore is all right. Teddy's however, it's been much. <laughs> Strange, isn't that? How you, it, when you, when you compare American traditional quote unquote traditional American values to European values across the pond, it's mostly well. We don't want to you know expose our children to too much violence and beatings and shootings. But they can hear fucking piss and shit and cunt, and they can, you know, see some slap and the t some slap and tickle on telly, and it's all right. Yeah, but with this, very reversed here. It was, it was, it was interesting. Let's just put it that way. And that's the era I grew up in. It's just something that sticks with you. It's as I call it, like a little piece of my childhood that still got to live on a little bit, you know. And. It's one of those things I enjoyed, and I was always the kid who was reading horror novels at the library, you know, because let's be honest, like, you know, being a military brat sucks because you're constantly moving, but damn, do they have great libraries, and damn, do they have good bookstores on the PX, you know, you could get everything that but you wanted to get your hands on. That's actually really good to, to hear, because that actually kind of rolls right into my next uh, actual formatted question here. <laughs> was uh, I was going to ask if you read within the genre too or if it's strictly for film and television, but like you just said, you, you did a lot of reading of horror as well. Yeah, and I, I always...
always liked the classics. I know a lot of people piss and moan on me because I hate this new resurgence of Stephen King. I, I, I absolutely hate it. He was relevant in the 80s. I give him credit where credit's due. Once that guy sobered up, he started to suck. I'm sorry. And we're reliving his glory days. And I'm only gonna give I'm only gonna give him one exception, and that's the tower. Uh, Dark Tower to me is just so convoluted. I, I just I just can't. It's part of why I love know? it. What's that? That's, that's part and parcel of why I love it. But it, it, it's to me, it's like I can tell that this is something that he he loved as a child, and I'm perfectly a okay with that, but. You know, to me, it's like, eh, you know, and it's great that his universes are, are all kind of connected in, in some way, shape, or form. I like that, too, but... Some of them are very flimsy connections. Right, but, you know, his earlier works, I, I love, you know. I, I love, basically, you know, Carrie, his first really published novel. I loved his Richard Bachman books, not The Regulators, and everybody gets like a fucking hard on as soon as I mention Richard Bachman, but not The Regulators. I was thinking Long Walk. Well, I, I like The Running Man. The book, not the shite 80s film. Well, the shite 80s film has its own charm if you're just sitting back enjoying a couple Sixers and, and laughing your ass. Oh, off. well, okay. Um, I, I suppose I, mean, I can get through that. Especially, especially with, with the whole comeback of, you know, where Arnold's like, oh, be buck, and he's like, only in a rerun. And I'm like, damn, that was like the best one-up of that line I've ever heard. You know what I mean? Of all the movies he's been in, that was the only smart-ass comeback that works. Yeah. You know, I can see that on his tombstone. Oh, it'll be back. And down below, somebody chisels in only in a rerun. <laughs> and it would be very oh, fitting. Future vandalism projects. <laughs> Note to self. Note to self. Thankfully, I don't have a big audience, so no one should blow you in for this one should it ever happen. Yeah, it might be a while until Arn kicks the bucket, but... No, I mean, I, I, I never dug a lot of, I mean, I like Early King, like Carrie, Cujo, um, Christine, I loved Christine. Um, no, what about, shine. what about like Clive Barker? Clive Barker, I, I always dug. Um, I, I know a lot of people have gotten on the case of um, the Hellbound Heart being, you know, the movie, you know, Hellraiser being different from the Hellbound Heart. And I'm like, well, that's because when Doug Bradley showed up and gave an epic performance, he's like, that's my pinhead. I don't care if that's a chick or not. That's my pinhead. You right. know what I mean? And the fact that this was something that Clive Barker was involved with the original, the film itself, where, hey. With the first yes, two. Yeah. Yeah, with the first one. But my point of it is, is, is it's like, you know, for him being the creator and saying, you know, it's not how I envisioned it in the book, but this guy is Pinhead. To me, that's, that's amazing. Um, so I always loved Barker. I always loved the Books of Blood, Rawhead Rex, um, The Thief of Always. Uh, Underappreciated book. I love that fucking, that story. What, Thief of Always? Yes, I fucking love that. They have, that has been another movie that's been in development hell. And I don't care what anybody says, if somebody even announced tomorrow, or ten years from now, they're finally getting a movie of The Thief of Always out, and be like, no. First words out of my mouth, it's taken way too long for this to happen. No. Done. You know? Because <laughs> there's some things I feel that I have a shelf life. Right. You know, it's it's kind of it's kind of like what happened with Valerian, which was a big French comic book back in the day. And it comes out, and everybody's like, oh... What's this? You know, kind of like John Carter, you know? To me, that movie was a good movie. It just wasn't advertised properly. It wasn't explained properly. There should have been something to kind of ease people into John Carter so they knew what it was about beforehand. I don't know how Disney could have done it any better. But that's just me. But no, I, I, I love horror fiction. I love sci-fi fiction. Um, Kuntz has always basically stuck by, you know, stuck in my head greatly. Um, Dean Kuntz, uh, The Watchers. The Watchers, the yep. The favorite books of all time. Fuck the Corey Haim movie, though I'd love to own a good Blu-ray copy of it. Fuck that Corey Haim movie. <laughs> it's a big departure 
from the novel altogether, but still, I mean, that, that book was great. i never seen um, the film, largely because I didn't want to be disappointed. Well, it's, it's worth the watch for what it is, and uh, to see that one actor go ape shit as the crazy secret agent guy is, is pretty cool, too. Um, can't think of his name. He played um, Roscheck in uh, Starship Troopers, the movie. Okay, I, I know the. I, I have the face in mind. I just can't remember. Was it Michael Ironside? That sounds right. It might be. Yeah, that was who. That was who was the, like the the human villain that was in the Watchers. I'm like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. Um, but no, I like Dean Koontz. Um, I, I loved um, what was it called? Um, Phantoms. Phantoms like a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> But I love Phantoms. Um, and then, of course, like recently, like some of the authors I, I love to get into. Um, I love Del Toro's, and I can't remember the guy who wrote with him, um, but the, the Strain novel series. I, I wasn't a big fan of the TV show. The comic book was all right. The book was interesting until about midway through the second bit, the second part of the Strain trilogy. Um, it got a little too religious and head, heady for me. I'm like, Ugh, do we really have to get into religion with vampires? Is it necessary? I'm like, no. Especially when the first book is dealing with it as like a virus and a scientific right. kind the, of standpoint. And then to suddenly get all mystical and magical. And, and Jesus, no, I'm good. Right. <laughs> you know, checking out. <laughs> but um, I love that. I love what, um, you know... John Cheese and David Wong have put out there, um, like John dies at the end, and this book is full of spiders. Great, great books. The movie John dies at the end. If you haven't watched it, please do. It, it, it's a big head fuck, but it's fun. Um, and that's the way I feel movies should be. Same way with books, you should be able to have fun with the content. Um, but yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed you know reading and writing. There, there's some projects that I've been sitting on and. It's been an interesting twist and turn of events with some of my own creative projects where I suddenly find elements of stories that I've had sitting in my desk for a long while suddenly becoming part of, as I, I like to call it, the mythos of the Princess of Darkness, which is interesting, to say the least. Hey. And you know, especially if you if you hang on to notebooks and what have you, because, I, I mean, I've, I've done... I've done plenty of like uh, Instagram posts recently, and and in the past I've posted uh, pictures on Facebook all the time where I'd show off my little notebooks, my my small uh, hardcover notebooks, and be like, yeah, I've got this fucker still hanging around for the last you know three, four, five years, and um, the 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 key is keeping these fucking things someplace where you can go back and find them, uh. but. Uh, I've had a number of projects where I've I've outlined a story, either a short story or a novella length, just kind of sideline project. Come back to it a few months later, said fuck this, scrapped three quarters of it. But I'll find a character or a scene that seems to really stand out, and I th I find myself trying to find ways to work those scenes or characters into other stories. And it can be done, especially if you have um, you have at least a project going at the moment that's within the same kind of wheelhouse. Right. Well, growing up, I always, because as you know, I, I love horror movies. And like all of the big successful horror movies, especially ones that didn't get immediate sequels, or ones that got sequels that you were kind of like, eh, to. But like, you always kind of wonder what happens to the hero afterwards. Um, let's take Army of Darkness, for example. Let, forget about the Evil Dead TV series for a second. Um, you know, Ash gets back home. He's fighting all these monsters and these demons. You know, eventually there's going to be a pile of bodies and a lot of questions. You know? Right. Uh, good old Charlie from Fright Night and Peter Vincent. Again, there's going to be a lot of bodies and a lot of fucking questions. Um... Sarah Connor, well, we kind of saw what happened to her in Terminator 2. She wound up in a mental institution. Right. And right. it always kind of stuck in the back of my head, you know, what are the aftermath of these characters? What kind of life do they live? And I always love to play with that concept. And I always, I created this character named Jane, because I always like the concept of a man called Jane, because it's got 
you know, it's, it's kind of counter the fact that it's supposed to be a macho man, but his name's Jane. Right. And I like that, because when you research even Ash from the Evil Dead, his full name is Ashley J. Williams. Ashley. In yeah. fact, if you watch Evil Dead closely, his sister refers to him as Ashley. Ashley, yep. More than once. And few people catch on to that. And to me, it's always stuck with me of a character named Jane who has had to go through all kinds of weird supernatural bullshit that he wanted nothing to do with. Kind of a John Constantine kind of archetype where it's like, no, 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 fuck, all right, let me help. You know what I mean? Where it's like, not my problem, not my problem. Fuck, it's my problem. Turns back around and helps out. And it's something that I've seen, like, because as I've been scripting, like, the Princess of Darkness movie that I'm working on, as well as this weird-as-fuck sequel, I really need to quit the whiskey because that, 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 that sequel's getting weird. It's like, I don't even have the first script done, and I'm working on a sequel. What the fuck am I thinking? But um, it's just interesting because one of the concepts I've had for The Princess of Darkness to kind of create, like, a fictional biography for my character on YouTube is that she's a person that, yes, loves horror movies, and yes, has been through some weird circumstances in her life, but she just wants to watch her movies. She just wants to be left alone. She wants to do the right thing for the world, but she just doesn't like the fact that the world treats her like an utter asshole most times. And there's a little bit of me in that. So. <laughs> it's like, I'm trying to help you fuckers out. I really don't want to, but y'all treat me like shit. Um... Uh, and I, I've seen that I've taken elements from the Jane character that's slowly been adapted into the Princess of Darkness, and I, I kind of like that. It's like, oh, okay, so it did have a use. Jane wasn't my just torture boy who I kill on the regular or put through some shitty circumstance to make my day feel a little better. I'm like, oh, he has a purpose, yay! <laughs> as weird as that sounds. Uh, as long as it, you know, as long as it functions in some shape, way, shape, or form. If it functions, keep at it. Yeah, and, and that's that's the thing I always thought was interesting, because to me it was like working on something like that is kind of like your own private project. It was it can also, kind of like... It can also be your own personal hell if you let it be. Well, for me it was... I'm trying to think of the word. It's on the tip of my tongue, but... Catharsis isn't the right word, but you'd go home after you've had a shitty day at work... And you're like, huh, my day's been bad. How can I make Jane's day worse? <laughs> you know? You're looking for a, a sort of uh, schadenfreude by fictional proxy. Yeah, and, and, and for me it was, it was interesting. It's like, you know, this is a character who, in, as I like to call it, it was literary masturbation. The shit I've thrown at this character has no rhyme, no reason. It's just fun. Um... But for him, it's probably really shitty. I mean, if there's some sort of parallel universe where he exists, he's going to be really pissed. <laughs> Even Kurt Vonnegut uh, was willing to step into the area of, quote, literary masturbation, inserting himself into Kilgore Trout. I mean, this is a guy who I've literally killed, and then he had to go back after he got resurrected to recover his own body from the morgue, and, you know, the whole line of... You know, one day stealing your own dead body will get it weird. <laughs> Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> <clears throat> now, something else that uh, you are fond of doing and that you've you talked about a wee bit earlier and that uh, before we got to actually jabbering, I believe. Um, but you do uh, you you stream on uh, Twitch, yes? I do Twitch. PlayStation Network, and YouTube. All right. Now, as a medium, how do you feel video games stack against other channels of creative expression and narrative for horror and suspense? Uh, the Last of Us is all I can really say about that. I mean, that game, in and of itself, as a narrative, is brilliant. Um even when I was playing it with my son, he's all like, wow. And I'm like, yeah, because there's like some heavy themes in that game where you're like, holy crap. And a lot of people just look at it and go, oh, it's just a zombie shooter. And I'm like, oh, there's some more levels of this than that. I'm like, on the 
external, yeah, that, that's basically what it boils down to. So that most of the enemies you're fighting aren't the clickers, the zombies of the movies, uh, they're of uh, the games. It's more of, hey, a survival story of this guy trying to get this young girl from point A to point B unharmed, and then he finds out when he gets her to point B that she's going to be harmed anyways, and he's kind of bonded with her, and he's like, no, fuck these people, I'm saving this kid. And the whole of humanity is at stake, but he values his relationship with this kid more than that. Because he's like, you know, what's humanity worth if we're going to sacrifice the child to save it? And I'm like, and, kind of point. And it's it's a wonderfully understated and subtle way in which that point is delivered and brought across. Which is something that video games, at least in their infancy and in the early days, had no righteous clue how to figure out. Um, some video games have had storylines that have had a fair amount of uh, deeper thought and philosophical uh, bent to them, something that you could ex you could extrapolate from the narrative or specific character arcs. Usual, more often than not in like Japanese-style role-playing games, up until about the PlayStation 2 era, a lot of uh, video game narratives were not exactly what I would call stellar. Um, well, here's the thing with that, and this is what I think a lot of the problem comes from in video games. Um, essentially, early games were very basic, very simple. I mean, in order to explain the game, it needed to come with a book to say, right. here's what's going on, here's the backstory. I mean... Hell, if I recall, Pong came with an instruction manual. And if you think about it, the, the background story from the original Super Mario Brothers um, game... is dark. It is. Because if you sit and think about the implications for more than 15 seconds, you come to the in incontrovertible conclusion that Mario is a multiple murderer. Mario's a psychopath. Every yeah. brick you break in that game was originally a resident of the Mushroom Kingdom. Yeah, I often wondered if, like, you know, like a little power-up, like the magic mushroom that you get, isn't, like, just a toad head just slowly floating down across the room. Right. <laughs> like, is that someone's severed rolling head now moving towards me to make Mario big so that he yeah, can crush more people? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, it, it, it's dark. And what I think is interesting is is that when we start to get into the 8-bit era, Grant, yes, we still had manuals that kind of gave us somewhat of a backstory. And the best way I can put it is is I love the Mega Man series. I've always loved the Mega Man series. Hail the Blue like, Bomber! When, when, when it comes to video games, that makes my clit rock hard. Fucking Mega Man. It's like, oh, God. Oh, Jesus. I mean, and that, that those games had conveyance, and what I mean by conveyance is, is when you're playing it, it teaches you how to play the game without smacking it across your head. There isn't some magic fairy that comes up and goes, Mega Man, Mega Man, that's a cliff, don't jump into it, Mega Man, Mega Man, it's a hammer too, avoid it. No, it doesn't do that, you know, like... In 64, Legend of Zelda. Ooh, look, Link, here's a sign. Watch, look. And you're like, oh my god, fucking die, Navi. But, um, no, it basically would show you, and it had, like, little ways of showing you, like, little different things. Like, for example, like, I know in the Mega Man games, there would be, like, platforms that would drop. And there would yep. be some enemies that would drop down on you, too. But they wouldn't show them together at first. They would show the dropping platforms, or there was a couple of them. So you're like, oh, okay, so when I see these, these are going to fall if I'm not careful. And right. then all of a sudden, they'll show the enemy, and then a little later on down the level, they have both. And you're like, I know what to do here. Right. It, it, it's, a graduated, it's a graduated learning curve. Right. And it, it was a way of showing you without explicitly telling you. Right. And, or there would be areas where there'd be a trap that you hadn't encountered yet. But then an enemy icon would move into the trap and die. 
Yeah. So yeah. you and knew, you oh, were... fuck, don't do what that idiot did. Yeah, exactly. And that was conveyance. It was a way of saying, hey, you know, without beating you in the face of it. And there was a learning curve. And it, it took a bit to get to it. I mean, that's why I love Shovel Knight. Because that game, and I don't know if you've played it on any modern systems or anything of that nature yet... It's a cheapie, and it's great to get, and it's got a crazy-ass multiplayer experience to it now. But um, it's interesting. Think Mega Man mixed with the original DuckTales with um, the little, like, uh, pogo stick jump that you can do a Scrooge McDuck. I remember But with that. a shovel. Yeah. Um, so it's got those kind of two mechanics, like, fused together, and it's, it's really good. And... You know, it, it has conveyance. It, it will do like the older video games did without beating you across the head. Like, when you figure something out, you feel achieved because, hey, I figured this out. I wasn't told by some little fairy, a fairy bugging me every five seconds that, hey, that's an enemy. Use the target to hit it. And it's like, oh, my God, just shut up. You know? <laughs> Wasn't that – that almost sounds very familiar. Was that an element in Mega Man Legends? I, no, but it was an element in Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Right, I remember that, but the, the voiceover you did there, that Mega Man, Mega Man, just for some reason sounded really familiar. Well, it probably is from Legends, because now I think about it, yeah, they, they probably had role where somebody pop up and go, Woo! <laughs> Look at this! It's like, God, no, just stop. Don't let me figure it out, you know? And, like, there are games that had great conveyance. And I know a lot of people kind of down on early games. And there wasn't enough story. It needed a manual. Like, some of that story was, like, between the lines. Like, some of that stuff you had to figure out on your own. Like, between Mega Man and Mega Man X, there's a span of 100 years. Right. You know? And apparently technology hasn't gone very far because you got the doctor who finds Mega Man X in the original game, and he's not really like a robotics doctor. He's an archaeologist. He digs this up, and he's like, whoa, this is way more far advanced than any technology we have today. And you're sitting there like, wait, hold on. Why is everything so far behind? Granted, you're an archaeologist, and you're now rediscovering this lost technology, but what was the deal with Monsteropolis or Light City or whatever the fuck they called it because they changed the name so many times in so many right. games? But M what happened? Makes Why you wonder what kind of cataclysm took place to set things back as hard as they did. I'm like, did, did, did Wiley finally just say, fuck light and big old nuclear holocaust and just bury everything? I mean, because it makes sense in later X game, because Wiley does show up as a robot with his conscience stuck in it. And it's like, was this his ultimate in-game? Was he like the Dr. Jiro of Mega Man? I'm like, that's kind of cool. <laughs> now, um... Outside of a horror, do you have any favorite um, books, games, movies, or television shows that are not horror-based? Um, I love, as weird as it sounds, I, I love Alien ripoffs, and I love Star Wars ripoffs from the 80s okay. when it comes to movies. Like My favorite, of course, is Star Crash, because Caroline Monroe, we can talk about her all day long, love Caroline Monroe. Um, but great movie. I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's so terrible. I'm like, yeah, but that's the point. You've got a drunken Texan hillbilly robot. You've got this guy who is just, uh, you know, the ex machina of basically the whole plot where he basically solves all the problems. Where it's like, no, I knew this was going to happen all along. Here's your solution. And it's like, dude, why didn't you t tell us this 15 minutes ago? That would have helped us out. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, you have, um, what was his name from uh, Baywatch? Uh, crap. The lead in Baywatch. The guy. I... David Hasselhoff. Hasselhoff. Do not hassle the Hoff. Yes, he, he, he's in it with Guy Liner with, with a fake lightsaber. And there's a whole lightsaber duel in it with Erector Set Robots. And that movie is just worth watching. The new MST3K did riff on it. But it's something that's been in my rotation for years now, and it's a great movie. Um, I love Star Wars. I always kind of grew up with that. That was, you know, one of the big things that I enjoyed greatly. 
Um, when it comes to like novels and things of that nature, I did dip into H.G. Wells back in the day. Um, I'm a big Crichton backer because I always loved, you know, Michael Crichton. Um, in fact, it was funny because we're talking way before Jurassic Park the movie came out. I want to say it was either 89 or 90 when the novel came out. I had literally wrote Crichton as a kid, and I'm like, hey, you know, there's some things that are missing here. It doesn't make sense um, with Jurassic Park. And I was basically like, you know, how is it that they were just successfully able to take dinosaur DNA from fossilized amber, amber within the stomach of a mosquito, which would, of course, would have heavily degraded the DNA, not right. to mention cross-contamination with the mosquito, so I'm surprised you don't have, like, dinosaur bugs running around. Um, Look, I live in Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes and a billion fucking mosquitoes. We don't need them Tyrannosaurus Rex-sized. Yeah, and I was like, you know, there's a lot of X, Y, and Z here. I said, and, and to say that, hey, here's this amber, we extract the DNA... We, we fill in the gaps, and presto, we got a dinosaur. I said, you know, this is a new technology. And granted, here I am, like a kid, barely 11 or 12 years old, saying, hey, um, the science here doesn't add up, because your test yields are going to be very low for your first production run. You're going to have to mass produce these animals. I said, the only way that, that would work is if the tour that everybody's given in the novel is just for show. I said, and then they have a factory somewhere else where they're making the animals. And all of a sudden, I got a letter back from Creighton. He's like, well, you got a point. There might be a book in that. <laughs> Possibly. Although, although it does it does make me wonder, you do re realize that when reading fiction, you're supposed to suspend your disbelief, right? Yeah, but see, I always <laughs> use the type where it's like, you know, it's a plot hole here. You get what I'm saying? I mean, I was the first one when I was a kid, and they showed, um, what was that movie with uh, Peter Cushing in it? They're on this train, and there's like a frozen caveman on it, and he wakes up, and apparently he can possess people from from looking at them, and he wipes their brain absolutely clean, because so the brain doesn't have any wrinkles on it. And I do they get not a know. Horror Express, I think it is, but they get on this train, and like the monster's hopping from body to body and they find like leftover bodies and they can take the eye and project their last known memories from the eye and you're like bullshit 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 <laughs> and this is a movie i saw again around about the same time 10 12 years old like bullshit you know what i mean and, and that's just how i was built but it was really cool because you know i later on i did get a letter from Crichton, and i thought that was cool and when i heard there was a movie coming out like i even you know, had gotten a hold of them, like, well, here's some ideas I have for a sequel, and then Topps Comics had reached out to me back in the day, and I was going to get published through them, and I, I thought that was cool. Of course, they went bankrupt before that happened. Yeah, it's kind of difficult to, uh, it's difficult to run a series when you've got no operations budget. Yeah, well, it was funny, because I, I still got a nice, you know, $5,000 check out of it, but... <laughs> More than I've ever made. Hey, when you're just barely a kid and you're like, what? <laughs> you know, just barely out of being a kid and almost going into college and you get a $5,000 check. It's kind of neat. I would say screw you because I've never made that big a bank for anything I've done, but uh, one should not be grumpy. Well, it was interesting and it just felt like a kick in the, the chutzpah, to say the least, when... Um, you know, I, I, I finally got to see some of the ideas for Jurassic World, and I'm like, you motherfuckers were looking at something, and I, I kind of have an idea as to what y'all were looking at. Y'all did it wrong, but where's my movie check, you know? That's right, we're going to get a motherfucking movie check. Where's my movie check? Anybody right now, who does I not mean, understand I, that I, reference, I, I apologize to anyone who doesn't understand that reference, but you should look into a fellow by the name of Kevin Smith. Yeah. Give me my motherfucking movie check. <laughs> but no, I mean, I always thought that was interesting. I mean, I, I loved, like, some early sci-fi. I did get into some Ray Bradbury. I did, did get into, like, some other light works of fiction. Um, 
I loved, um, what was that novel called? Oh, shit. The one with the weird dinosaur lizard thing in the museum. Oh. You were, you're beyond my wheelhouse on that one, I think. They made, they made a movie out of it. It was a really shitty adaption of the book. Ah, uh, The Relic. Okay. And the sequel was really good, which was called Reliquary, but they never made that into a movie. Um, I love those books. Uh, a lot of people go, well, that's kind of hard. I'm like, just because you got a monster running in a rampage through a museum doesn't exactly make it harder. Um, are there are there any indie horror authors or stories that you've stumbled across in recent times that, that you found were surprisingly well done? Uh, I don't have to dig back. Um, it's been a while. I, I tend to dip my toes into some very light stuff, to say the least. Um, I used to love, and granted, kind of dips back. Back in the day when Dark Horse Comics was still an independent publisher, they did horror stories that were independent, um, that they would draw and you know illustrate and everything else, and it was called Dark Horse Presents. And they were little tiny segues. And sometimes they'd lead in the series, sometimes they wouldn't. Um, but there was one that was called The Ark, which was brilliant. And I'm surprised it didn't become a full-fledged series. Where it involved this group of prisoners getting ready to get sent off to this maximum security prison. And the one guy used to work as kind of like a zoo, kind of like maintenance guy, and I can't remember exactly the details, but he was very familiar with animals and animal handling, and this alien ship crashes, and there's all these different species of animals that come out of it. Um, and it causes, of course, the prison bus to crash, and they're all kind of fighting against these animals, and this guy, this prisoner, kind of figures out what's going on, and it was just very intricate and very weird in a sci-fi kind of horror kind of way. I enjoyed it so much. Um, but yeah, that was back from Dark Horse Presents. So, same way with Virus. That was even Dark Horse back in the day. The early, early concept of Virus, uh, which, of course, involves the salvage crew that's on a boat that stumbles across an abandoned Russian ship that apparently was communicating with a satellite up in space that picked up this alien transmission. I, I, I realize now why this sounds familiar, because they, they, they also yeah. made a Dreamcast survival horror game based on that. Yeah. Called Carrier. They made a movie. Yep. They made that, they made that, they also made, um... But yeah, I, I love that, I love that, like, comic more than I did the movie, because the comic was so much better. Because it got into more detail, more elements, and it, it was brilliant. And it was an indie comic. I hope whoever did that. I know Steven Plug was involved because he did the art. Can't remember who did the writing on it, but it started out as a Dark Horse Presents item. And then somebody was like, whoa, this, this needs a full series. It's really kind of, um, it's disappointing in a way when something that's truly artfully done gets a gets a chance at being something bigger but then kind of fades or or fizzles out because of a lack of backing or a lack of um support behind it well the one thing i, I think is interesting because i love to read a lot of foreign books and i love to watch tons of foreign movies and this is the thing that trips me out because a lot of people don't know this but let the Right One In yep. was a foreign written novel. It even has a sequel yep. called The Old Dreams Die. Um, and the original one, I want to say it was either Swedish or Norwegian. I always mix those two up. Just call me fucking McCready. It is Swedish. Okay. I've seen the original but, film. Yeah. But the film, the original film, Let the Right One In, was brilliant. It was. It, it was. It, it had a, a strangely melancholy, but under there was an undertone of hope to that melancholy in the end. Right. Um, the American remake. Oh God! It, it, a lot of people say, "Oh, I really like that movie." I'm like, haven't yeah, seen no. it. To me, it's like you made number one the vampire character's caretaker 
more human and kind of gave him a backstory. And I'm like, uh, if you read the novel, you already got the backstory. This is not a guy we're supposed to like. He right. was a pedophile. Sorry. I've never read the book, unfortunately. The book basically makes it clear that that dude is a pedophile. That's why he was the caretaker of the vampire, because it was the only way he could express his lust and it be, quote-unquote, okay. In heavy quotes. Big, heavy quotes. Um, but she never reciprocated on that because she was just using him. He was a tool, and he would. He, it was never her intent to ever turn him. Uh, and then, of course, in the book, it also touches on issues that are near and dear to me, such as like you know the whole transgender aspect. Because there's a scene that's in the original movie. I don't think it's in Let Me In. I might be wrong, but where the kid is like, but you're just a girl. And she's like, no, I am not a girl. And in the book, it goes into more detail. She is not your traditional kind of girl. And not just because she's a vampire. And I'm like, whole other level that you don't get to see. But it's still there in the original film. And I'm like, I like that. You know? It's there. It's it's subtle. It's subdued. And it doesn't, yeah. it's subdued and it doesn't become the writing focal point of the narrative. No, it doesn't. And, but there's a lot of like issues in the book that are touched on. They're not heavily hammered into your head, but you're like, oh, I see what they're saying there. And that subtlety is, is masterful when it's carried out properly. And I, right. I've read a handful of books over the last course of the last year and a half that um, many times, and, and most of these have been published through mainstream means, um, you know, easily accessible through a Barnes & Noble or a half-price half books, you know, larger publishing presses. And one that I, I read recently uh, was called Autonomous, which was given a great deal of praise, and that's part of the reason why I was interested in reading it because it made a, a list on Publishers Weekly uh, of underappreciated or sleeper-hit science fiction stories. So I, I asked for a copy of it for Christmas last year, and I, and I got it, and I was um, maddeningly disappointed because while the themes and the ideas that it touched upon were important issues to discuss or to cover, they were hammered in so ham-fistedly and so obtusely as to almost be grandstanding and lecturing the audience rather than saying, maybe here's something to think about. It was so blatant as to stop me in my tracks of actually following the narrative. And when you're that... Over when you overplay your hand that heavily, you are no longer telling a story. You are sermonizing, and that is not the purpose of good storytelling, nor is it the proper technique of storytelling. That is right. just getting on a soapbox and screaming at your audience. Exactly. And another one of my like uh, favorite like all time like books like growing up um and granted this would have been like after like my teen years like when i was in college and things of that nature but i got my hands on a copy of and grant the original novel not the manga the original novel but takami's battle royale yes i love that book and trust me when when i heard there was a movie coming in early 2000 i went out of state to go see it because i know they had it playing in dc um, and, you know, I was sold automatically because all you had to say was uh, Takashi Meek. And I was like, right there. Because with him playing the, the gym instructor that's at the end and won't die until he's done with his phone call. I mean, that was just brilliant. You know, but the book is brilliant. And granted, yes, it does copy a lot of very familiar themes that we've seen in other places. Um, as early as basically... Um, the Lord of the Flies. Here's the and, thing about and, that is, and and it's been it's been said by by many academics and scholars in the literary realm 
that there is no quote-unquote truly original story anymore. But here's the, the, the important distinction to make with that, is if it is told well, if the technique is solid, if the characters are developed and you can actually empathize or understand those characters, even if it is derivative or is material that has been trod upon before, if it's well executed, it's well executed and it's good narrative. You cannot strip that away simply because it touches upon themes, ideas, or concepts that have been done before. Good narrative is good narrative, period. And I just, I just think it's like, you know, it was a great book. And I, I was even more wowed by the movie. And I got to see, granted, it was subbed. It was subtitled, but it wasn't dubbed. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, we got a movies to read. And I'm like, I get that because it disrupts from the film's narrative. You're not, because a film is both visual and audio. And if you're busy reading, you're going to miss certain little nuances. But seriously... Sometimes it's best to watch in the original language with a decent translation as opposed to a dub. Uh, but to me, I mean, it was a great film. I mean, I loved it to death. Again, seeing Takahashi Meek, as most people know him, or Ta- Takahashi Katano, or Beat Takahashi. Dude has so many names, it cracks me up. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with any of his work, but the man's a genius. Um, he, he has done like comedy shows in Japan, he's done horror, he's done movies, he's done video games, he writes, he's a poet. Um, yeah, and speaking of his one video game attempt, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was that? It was only on the Famicom, you can probably find a ROM hack of it. It is a very difficult game. Uh, because it's very cryptic, it doesn't have much conveyance to it, but it does take some time to figure it out. Um, but it's called Takeshi's Challenge, and it is very interesting because one of the first things you do in the game is you quit your job, you make sure you put half your money into the bank, and you hide the other half. That way, your wife doesn't get it. Then you go home and tell your wife you want a divorce. Then you pay her the half that's in the bank that you get to keep the other half. (laughs) And then you go on this weird adventure, which turns into a treasure hunting game by the middle of it. And you're like, what? But you got to do all these weird steps to get to that point. And the game is very difficult. I'm like, you can do all kinds of crazy things in the game. Like, you can end the game, like, within the first couple seconds when you walk up to your boss. You can kill your boss and it's just automatically game over screen. Huh. And it's like, wow. But, yeah. Um, was this a point and click one, game? No, it was one of the Famicom, and it even, because you got to keep in mind with the Famicom, it even has a microphone port on the controller, like on controller two. There's even a karaoke level where you've got to sing a song. On the Nintendo? Huh? On the Nintendo? Yeah, it didn't come out stateside. So you'd have to get a ROM translation and play it on PC. But it's a brilliant game. Hmm. And it's like a running joke. I'm like, you know, everybody's like, yeah, but he only ever made one game. I'm like, because it's Takashi. He only had to do one, and it was perfect. Um, really quick, if you are willing to share, you already touched upon it uh, a bit earlier that you're working on these, uh, these screenplays. Um, is there anything else that you're working on right now? Well, right now, the sole focus is, is of course, come Monday, I'm going to be doing a, um, another podcast with, um, Hertzy Hertz. Um, she does this thing, uh, called Hertz Talks, um. She's part of the whole community that, damn it, she's part of the atheist community, see, I was trying to think of what it's called, uh, that basically likes to talk about movies and, like, you know, she's dealing with a lot of Satanism in movies and, you know, with the poignantness of it. And I told her the other day, I'm like, well, if you want to do one, I'll do one with you because, you know, I love horror movies. I love anything that's movies. We'll, we'll do a podcast and we'll talk about a movie. And she was giving me all these ones that were just horrible tripe. And I'm like... You know, I said, it's good to riff on something. 
I said, but you can't make that solely your point. I mean, if you're only talking about the shit without showing a little bit of the cream, you're not doing your job as a reviewer or a critic. You got to be able to say, hey, here's a good one. Right. You know, every once in a while. I've run into I've run into that problem myself with the indie book reviews I've done, where most of the material I get is garbage. But then again, I also don't actually produce a video review of everything I read. Right. And and the thing that I try to explain to her is, is I'm like not everything out there is garbage. Not in the film realm. And like, granted, yes, if you're looking specifically for garbage, it's all you're going to find. So I told her, I'm like, you ever heard of this movie called The Gate? And she's like, no. I'm like, oh, it's an 80s classic. I said, you got to watch it. I said, it was done by a bunch of Canadians. And then immediately she's scoffing right off the bat because, you know, Canadians, eh? <laughs> you know? But um, I told her, I said, it's well produced. It's got great special effects. Um, granted, it's a product of the times. But it's still a good narrative it's still a good story. It's not heavy-handed with Christian themes or anything of that nature. Right. I said it does It does deal with the satanic nature of rock music. And I said I even find it funny that they actually used a real band and their albums to bring about hell. And the band was like, yeah, sure, eh? Go right ahead and do it. <laughs> you know? Right. And that, that's, that's <clears throat> something that I think a lot of people could benefit from understanding is that regardless of how well or poorly some form of media has has aged if the if the story concept is solid it will remain solid yeah you can yeah. Uh, and, and like you said if you're going to go looking for terrible examples of entertainment then you're going to inevitably find them. It's when you take the time to sit back and appreciate something for what it is in its own context and then try to transpose it into, well, how does this stack up with things today? Because let's say you've got, this film is from the 80s, you said, and is a product of its era. So the visual and audio effects are not going to stack up well against something produced in modern time. But put yourself in the mindset or the perspective of someone taking in popular culture entertainment in the 1980s. If you can transpose your own perspective in that fashion, you've already taken a huge step in learning to appreciate art that is not from your own wheelhouse and era. Exactly. And that's what I was trying to convey to her. I'm like, look, you know, yes, it's great to sit around and trash on shit movies. I mean, I do it all the time. I said, however, I said, even on my own review show, there are movies where I'm like, look, this is good. You know, this is not a, a flaming pile of shit. You know, this is a good film. Um, because I, I will candy grab, I will take suggestions from people. Granted, people love to send me shit, but every once in a while, somebody will send me a gem that I don't know anything about, and I'm like, all right, let's power it up. And nine times out of ten, I'm impressed. So that's why I was kind of like, Hertz, he's like, oh, I can't wait to rip into this movie. I'm like, are you sure? I said, because you want to watch it. Just just watch it and put yourself in these shoes. And I think I've even taken her a, be, uh, a bit back, and she's like, yeah, you're right. This This is a little different. And I said, exactly. I said, you know, right now everybody's throwing a fit about um, Decker having a writing credit on the Predator movies. And they're like, oh, he ruined RoboCop 3. And then my immediate statement is, is yeah, but he also wrote and directed Night of the Creeps and Monster Squad. I think I can let one clunker go by if he wrote quality caliber stuff with that. He's and not, I said, with he's him, not able. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, I, I was like, I, I can let one, one, one clunker slide, one, you know, and that's fine. I said, and you've got Shane Black on top of it, who also helped with the original Predator. It's like the new Predator movie is going to be pretty damn good. Well, uh, just about out of time here for this episode. Um, I do want to thank you for coming on and for doing this with me for t for today. 
Uh-huh. And um, really quick before we let you go for the episode, where can folks most easily get in touch with you or contact you if you're so willing as to share that information with us? Well, as always, you can find me on YouTube. Uh, just search for Sasha, the Princess of Darkness. Uh, we actually have a dedicated YouTube channel, even though I've been getting threats from YouTube that they might remove my special URL. So as long as I get some more subscribers on there, that would be great. Um, that's youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Sasha, the Princess of Darkness, all one word, slap together. You can find me right there. So if you could, subscribe, comment, like, watch a video too, things of that nature. Trying to get ourselves upwards of where we're at now. Um, outside of that, uh, if you go to Facebook land, we're on there as well. Also, Sasha, the Princess of Darkness, all one word. So Facebook.com forward slash Sasha, the Princess of Darkness. We do have Instagram. Um trying to remember what that is off the top of my head. Uh, Instagram.com forward slash the Princess of Darkness 1978. And then we're on Twitter as well. And that's just Princess O Darkness. Um, so, yeah, definitely. I'm quite sure um, Josh here will link everything up at the end in his credits and things of that nature. He seems pretty dedicated about that kind of thing. I try, uh, to, make, I try to make sure I do what I can with that. And if you want to email me, it's uh, the Princess of Darkness 1978 at gmail.com. I'm also a proud part of the uh, Trans Podcaster Visibility Initiative. Um, so we're kind of an organization that is basically creating visibility through podcasts, YouTube shows, things of that nature of the transgender community. All righty. Well, thank you for your time, Sasha. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to... Uh, Support the efforts of the Storytellers Corner going forward. There is a Patreon page. Uh, just l- go to Patreon and look up Joshua T. Culkin's Trilogy. Uh, it's a fuckery of a name, I know, but I can thank my loving parents for that one. Uh, there will be a link to that as well in the description of this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves, and as always, keep reading. And...